0: Hello, and welcome to Co-Recursive. I'm Adam Gordon-Bell. Each episode, someone shares the story behind a piece of software being built. You know, a few years ago, Evan Yu, the creator of Vue, that is V-U-E, a popular JavaScript framework. Well, Evan was excited about a revolutionary feature that he built for the 3.0 release.
1: It's called Composition API, and we said, okay, we're going to shift to this new API. The old API is going to be deprecated. The problem was the new API, it upset many
0: existing users.
1: In a way, our early user base are mostly people who preferred lightweight solutions, simple interactions, simple apps. But over time, we're seeing more and more users start building more complex apps with Vue, Right. So when we propose solutions to address these more advanced cases, these simple case users get pissed off because they are like, don't touch my framework. I don't want it work that way. Like, I don't care about the
0: complex cases. Why are you adding these complex APIs? Why are you making things more complicated? This is a problem. The Vue community and their feedback, they, they shape what Vue is. It changed the anger so many, it's not good. There's a lot riding on this. And so Evan needs to listen to those who are demanding a simpler interface. But many other users also felt the exact opposite. And they let Evan know as well.
1: They're like, oh, Vue has scalability issues. We have a huge Vue product. We have these huge components that nobody wants to touch anymore. We don't know how to extract and reuse things. I won't use Vue if it stays only for simple use cases because
0: it shows it doesn't scale. Like, we are going to just migrate to React, migrate to Angular. Evan's a new territory here. And that's our story today. Evan built Vue from nothing, and now it's popular and it supports him and it supports other team members. But getting there involved a lot of challenges, failed job interviews, nights and weekends lost to working on tickets, startup jobs that, that didn't quite pan out. But it all started with building things and getting them out there and getting feedback. And Evan's been building things on his computer for a long, long time. My first computer was the 486.
1: That was like really old and it had only, I think, 8 megabytes of RAM. But that thing actually cost a fortune back then. So my dad was like, computers are the future. He was right on a lot of things. He forced me to learn English really early on. He uh, bought a computer from me really early on. And for a very long period of time, the only thing I did was just creating these drawings in Microsoft Paint, right? And then in Flash, I used Flash to make a personal website of some sort Then showed it to my cousin who taught me Flash. Like I basically created really colorful compositions. Each page is a different color. He was like, wow, okay. He wasn't really into design, but he was impressed. He was like, oh, you have some like
0: interesting design thoughts. That feedback was important for Evan. Getting props from an older cousin just felt good, and that encouraged him to show more people his skills. He did a school project all in Flash. It was for a biology class. I used Flash to make
1: a whole presentation that looked like the underwater aquarium with like transitions between different scenes and animations that intro stuff. That one really made the whole class go crazy. They were like, dude, who makes stuff like this for a biology presentation?
0: (laughs) But yeah, but that was fun. So Evan kept creating things. The positive feedback was addictive, but so was just the actual process of creating things. What always spoke to me was this
1: kind of attention to detail and thinking about what would give people the wow factor when you see something visually. But another aspect is the design aspect where you think about what you're trying to build and then find the best way to express the core value of the thing you're trying to design for. But I think in the early days, it was mostly about Being able to create something, show it to people,
0: and see the expression on their face. Evan went to a liberal arts college in the U.S. It started in economics, but it just didn't click. I want to do something more artsy,
1: but my college really doesn't have a design program per se. It only has an arts department, and it's more like studio arts and art history. So it's more like uh, art critique, like studio Art, like you graduate, you either become a real artist or you go to work at a gallery or that kind of stuff.
0: That's quite a leap, right? From economics to art. And there's a lot at stake in this change. You see, as an international student, Evan's ability to stay in the United States is dependent upon finding a job after graduation that would sponsor a visa. Not something that art galleries are known for. Evan dad was nervous about this whole switch. But that was the closest thing I got.
1: related to design. So I still went with that. But luckily we were allowed to choose the medium for our graduation project. So basically I chose new media. So that means I can work with digital media for my art projects. So I did a bunch of research on modern art that used digital mediums, people who created art using algorithms, using machines, interactive installations. So this direction actually has a bit of more practical or industrial applications because there is a whole
0: like creative industry that's dedicated to doing this kind of stuff that creative industry is the realm of digital design studios and so from there evan went to the parsons school of design that let him stay in the country and that also let him hone his design skills the
1: graduate program was called master of fine arts in design technology And it literally is a program that teaches you both to design and code and allows you to explore a lot of different mediums. So you can do graphic design, you can do product design, or you can do physical computing, something that can automate or interact with users physically. A lot of interesting things like that. A lot of people who graduate from that program actually went on to say, work at creative agencies or actually just be designers. It's a pretty open-ended program. It basically shows you that there are many, many different ways you can express your creativity and share your creations.
0: At Parsons, Evan discovered HTML, CSS, JavaScript. These were exactly the design mediums he had been hunting for.
1: Because it's super low barrier to entry. You just code with a text editor and the browser. Anyone has a browser, right? You can immediately get feedback while you work on things. And when you're done, you just upload it somewhere and everybody can see it. Compared to, say, when you work on a physical computing project, it's very different experience. When you finally make it work, you have to remember how to take everything apart, store them correctly. Then you have a list of instructions on how to back put them back together for
0: your presentation. Web, in that regard, is much more tolerating. Parsons taught Evan product design. But learning JavaScript is something he did on his own. Then. A new approach to interaction design caught his eye, a to-do list app, the clear app for the iPhone. So it was basically the app that invented
1: the swipe to interaction, yeah. Swipe right to complete it, swipe left to cancel it. You pull down to create a new one at the top. You tap the empty space to create one at the bottom and you log pull to go back one level up. So you have like multiple sublists, right? There's only instructions where you first when you open it for the first time. It teaches you how to use it. And then later on when you use it, there's really nothing else but just some color blocks on the screen.
0: Why? Like why did that speak to you?
1: It's mostly the interaction and the very refined animations. Like people get used to it nowadays because you see it everywhere, right? But the first time you see it on a touchscreen an iPhone was relatively new back then, right? Touchscreen was relatively new. Everybody was just like
0: exploring how you can create new form of interactions on this new medium. So Evan got to work and he tried to recreate this in HTML. The question was, could this new way, this new approach, could it be done on the mobile web? So I did that and got pretty close to to replicating the the whole experience,
1: right? And, and then I uh, made a little video of the, the HTML-based replication, HTML JavaScript and CSS. He put a video up online and submitted it to Hacker News. And the next day, I realized, oh, it's actually up there. I didn't really realize what it would entail. But once it got up there, I actually got emails from like companies, recruiters, like trying to say, hey, do you want to work for us? I actually got a intern invitation from Facebook. They were trying to get into HTML5 and try to rebuild Facebook for mobile. So that
0: was the team that was trying to do that. They needed an intern, someone who knew JavaScript, the mobile web, and HTML5. I never expected I would work
1: at Facebook as an engineer because I, at that point, I still didn't consider myself actually an engineer or someone who'd work on serious like software engineering projects. In a way, like when I talked to the person who reached out to me, I was clear with him. Hey, like I did this as a design student. I didn't study computer science or anything. They're like, it's, it's okay. Come and try so that kind of set the tone. It was like, I realized, okay, like they actually wanted more than just what I uh, was able to do back then, but it was fine, right? It's a it's a learning experience in a way. They actually flew out me to California, did an on-site interview, a few rounds. And I failed that interview because during the interview, they started asking me questions like, how do you implement the prototype chain in JavaScript? And I realized, okay, I don't know shit about JavaScript. 'Cause really that was just the beginning of my like foray into web technologies. I was like basically reading about how you do things on like these tutorial sites or like MDN and just like basically learning just enough to make the things I want to make work. Had no systematic knowledge of how JavaScript worked or how to properly engineer stuff. So obviously
0: that didn't really fit the engineering role that Facebook wanted me for. So back from Facebook, Evan was still going to Parsons in New York, but he had moved to New Jersey and he had some commute time on his hands and he decided to put it to good use. I actually
1: bought the very thick Rhino book. If people learn JavaScript, they know what it is. It's called The Definitive Guide to JavaScript by O'Reilly. Had a Rhino on the cover. I read it from cover to cover during my commute. So there's like a 45 minutes ride one way. So I just read the book on the bus. They're how I forced myself to finish that book, really, because I had nothing else to do on the bus.
0: The Rhino book is large and, and kind of dry, but, but Evan was feeling empowered. You know, his clean app had gotten validation. He'd made something, he'd put it out there, and it had taken him all the way to the Facebook campus. Nowadays, I don't actually like Hacker News that much, but back then, just
1: seeing yourself up there and knowing, hey, this is a place where people know, oh, it's a big deal you get on Hacker News, that was like quite validating moment for me.
0: That validation, right? The recruiters reaching out, the attention of the wider world. It propelled Evan forward. It propelled him to take these two skill sets, the knowledge from his Rhino book, and the things he was learning at Parsons, and bring them together. We had this uh,
1: algorithmic animation class that teaches you how to do animations using code, and I realized, okay, you can do the same thing on a web page using Canvas or WebGL. And these are relatively new APIs that's just being introduced or standardized. And Chrome was really pushing this whole campaign of look what the web can do today, right? So they did a bunch of things called Chrome Experiments. Essentially, these little interaction pieces created using JavaScript and web technologies. So I really liked that and started doing things like along those lines by myself. I built a portfolio site and... These little interactions where, like, when you hover over the page, you see something following your mouse, and it's like a, a whirl of interactive dots that's controlled by your code, right? It just had these really nice curves. It's like a flock or swarm of things that just moves around. I included the HTML5 clear thing. I included a bunch of school projects and just put it out there in preparation for job hunting upon
0: graduation. Evan had a picture in his mind of his future, a job at an agency, one that did big brand advertising maybe. It had to be a place familiar with the visa process to keep him in the country, keep his dad happy. So they had to be willing to handle that. But yeah, he wanted to design these premium web experiences. What happened was something a little bit different.
1: I just got a call from a recruiter at Groovy Creative Lab and she was like, hey, we saw your thing out there. Looks interesting, do you wanna come It was like a direct offer. I think there was a sort of a interview process, but that's like they already decided to give me the job. They were just there to a vibe check or something.
0: Evan was offered a role that seemed perfect for him, the creative technologist, a title that acknowledged his self-taught tech skills, his design skills, and his artistic side.
1: So I was lucky enough to get this so early that I didn't
0: have to go through any
1: sort of submit resumes or anything like that.
0: But what about your, your dad? Did you phone him up and be like, listen, I didn't do economics, but Google. Yeah, yeah. I
1: did, I did. Exactly, I, that's what I said. I was like, look, look where I am now. I, I think he, he basically just said, oh, congrats. That's good for you. And I understand where he's coming from, right? So he was actually really happy when I told him, hey, I'm actually working at Google now. And there should be no problem with a work visa
0: or stuff like that. Okay, so imagine it's your first day at a new job. Now imagine that job is Google and it's your first job after graduating. For Evan, this didn't just feel like stepping into a new office plan, it was a leap into a world that felt like it had sprung from the pages of some science fiction novel.
1: Yeah, it was fancy. It's like huge office, people running around on scooters, and basically free snacks and free bars everywhere. It's very colorful decorations pretty much what you'd expect from a google office and i remember there was this library where there are bookshelves you can turn around there are hidden rooms and there are sleeping pods you can schedule massages and nice. you get gym membership you can take shower outside people can literally live in there it was really a bit even a bit overwhelming for someone who's just coming out of school right it's
0: like the moment where you realize oh I'm literally working here now. It's a bit unbelievable. Unlike Google's engineering-focused departments, Google's Creative Lab operates more like a creative agency. They blend tech with artistic vision. A lot of people who work there have agency backgrounds, but a knack for the technical side of doing things. There's two types of work they do. One, they're making creative ads for Google. But two, and more relevant, they're working on imagining and prototyping what the future of the web, what the future of Google might look like. Think Chrome experiments. Think the 3JS uh, project.
1: We did prom- promotional stuff for, for Chrome. Like once we did a, a interactive thing at Times Square where people can uh, scan something on their phone and then submit a photo and see their photo going live directly on the, on the future screen on Times Square. And then we did things like celebrating 100 years of your Rubik's Cube or something like that. We did this whole campaign where we built a interactive Rubik's Cube in the browser using CSS and JavaScript. And you can also click on a tile to upload a photo on it. So eventually the, the, the whole cube becomes a photo cube with all your photos. And then you can save and share it with other people. That's some of the public-facing stuff. I didn't do a lot of public-facing stuff. Most of my work was internal. Design interaction explorations for like crazy future interfaces. Imagine how search can work like in 10 years. Imagine how interaction with Google would work like in 10
0: years. One day, while exploring possible interactions, Evan discovered a new web API that allowed voice recognition directly in Chrome. With this tool, he crafted a simple chatbot that could listen to you talk and then respond.
1: It was just like a really, really dumb chat bot that does some simple pat- pattern matching. So basically hard-coded a bunch of queries in there. Like when you say, okay, Google, it triggers like listening mode. And then you ask a question, it tries to do a Google search and just feeds back, whatever that comes back. Right. So I built that in two hours and I showed it at our like show and tell and people went crazy. Like we didn't have that kind of interactions back then. Right. And I think if you really tried to do, uh, use it to do real stuff, you would get disappointed really quick, right? But then our, our creative director just got naughty and he he basically asked things, hey, Google, like I got 99 problems. And the chatbot was able to match that to the lyrics and came back with, but BitChain one," And everyone just went like,
0: what? <laughs> Evan worked on a lot of fun projects at Google Creative, but most projects, excluding OK Google and some Google Glass work, they would never see the light of day. And for Evan, this was hard, right? He craved that feedback, the excitement of having a link to a thing that he made that he could share, that he could submit to Hacker News, that he could show people. Evan needed a side project and pretty soon he had the idea for one. It all started when he moved beyond plain JavaScript, his preferred approach to building things and was introduced to Angular.
1: So when we were working with AngularJS, I had to learn about a lot of application level concerns Dependency injection, how AngularJS stitches everything together as an application. It was like, doesn't look like we really need all this extra stuff for the kind of work we're doing? And I felt like this feels a bit too heavy handed for the kind of things we're building.
0: What Evan needed was something lighter, more agile. He needed a framework that could respond with the same grace and precision that his prototypes demanded, something that got out of the way. And so, in the quiet corners of his spare time, he began to experiment. He dissected Angular, isolating the feature that most intrigued him, the data binding. That was mainly the motivation. I think, I think it
1: started out really with no expectations. It's le- more, let's see if I can do this. It's fun just playing around with these new ideas. Like how I got into the HTML5 Clear project. There was no clear objective. It was just mostly fulfilling my own curiosity.
0: He did have one goal though, even if he never explicitly stated it. At Creative Lab, he was great at building prototypes, but he felt something was missing. Uh, I think Vue was also an opportunity for me
1: to say, let's treat this as a serious project, right? Let's learn to enforce a bunch of rules, like LinkedIn rules, set up the repository correctly, review PRs, merge things, close issues, Basically, it's also a process for me to learn how to properly manage an open source project. Just learn by doing, pretty much.
0: The goal was to scratch his own itch, to use Vue, his new project, at Google and his various prototypes to make that work easier. And he did that, but just using it himself, that had limits. I've been working on this for quite a bit of time, right? If I use it only in
1: company projects, most likely it won't get seen by anyone, right? I mean, for those projects, people don't even care what you're building them with, right? So you don't get any sort of recognition for that. I had to make it public so that other people can maybe use it in some way. I think that's the the motivation, right? I only eventually got it to somewhat usable state in in 2014, right? I think the first commit was like in mid-2013, and the first public release was like in February 2014. So... It's really just an on and off kind of thing for a while, and in February, i patched it up into something usable. I think the the key moment was I started writing documentation. That's the moment I felt like, okay, maybe someone else can make use of this. Let's see how that goes. So I wrote everything and then submitted to Hacker News. So when I put view on the uh, Hacker News, I think it got voted to the front page again. Feedback was really positive. Uh, which is uh, a bit unexpected for me. Like I set the expectation pretty low. I was like, it'd be cool if someone would end up using it and that's good enough. But then I saw the pretty positive feedback and I was like, maybe this is getting somewhere, right? Maybe there's something behind this little thing that can grow bigger. So that kind of got me the first group of users. And I started getting issues of people like making suggestions, reporting bugs. For someone who's just gotten into open sourcing a new project, even a bug report is positive. It shows people are using your stuff. So you just jump on it and you start fixing it and you make releases. I don't know how to describe it. You get some sort of high from all this interactions that's happening continuously and you just want to keep it going. So I started basically spend all my spare time on Vue. If you look at my graph in those years, it's like almost all green, even on
0: weekends. And so Vue got better. It started being a competitor. And back then in 2014, it wasn't competing against React or Angular. No, it was competing against plain JavaScript and against jQuery. Front-end
1: wasn't really like what it is today. Like people don't expect build tools most of the time. So people are not building as complex apps as we do today, right? A lot of the use cases were people working with backend frameworks like rails or PHP and they're like we just need some interactivity on the front end but it's not as complex as Gmail but also more than you would typically handle with jQuery right it solves a problem for the people who are trying to build something semi complex with jQuery and end up with the jQuery spaghetti and they're like I hate this I hate front end and they realize okay here's this thing it's also easy to introduce. It's just a single script, just like jQuery, but it kind of solves the problem in a different way. So Vue was basically providing the right features with the right amount of complexity, like really low barrier of entry for most people.
0: And so it continued. People using Vue, people giving feedback, Evan iterating on it, feeling the excitement. It was addictive. It was a nights and weekends hobby that was taking up more and more time and was very different from his day job.
1: The the work at uh, Creative Lab was was exciting in many ways, right? But I realized, okay, like probably four out of five projects that we work on would end up nowhere. Like someone higher up would look at them and they would be like, oh, like this looks interesting, but doesn't sound practical. Or they'd be like, oh, there are maybe one or two things we can incorporate into a real product, but the rest is, we'll just leave it there. Many of the work at Creative Lab ended up that way. So when you see that pattern, it, it starts to get a little bit of I wouldn't say demoralizing, but it's it's I sometimes I wish we have a higher hit rate, right? Like I wish we more of the stuff we spend time working on would end up going out to the world. So to me, Vue was an outlet for that. Like I this is something that I control. It's already out there, right? Everything I do on View gets real world feedback.
0: Meanwhile, Web frameworks like Rails, like Django, like Laravel, were adding more interactivity. The expectations for the front-end were changing. React was now the go-to for building interactive front-ends. But this was a totally different development experience for those who were used to just sprinkling in some JavaScript here and there.
1: There was a moment when Taylor Otwell, author of Laravel, started looking for a front-end framework. He was just getting into front-end, so he started looking at some of the popular options. He tried React first, didn't really like it, and then he tried Vue, and he liked it. So he said, okay, I tried React, it's a bit hard for me, so Vue looks nice and easy. So he made that tweet, and that really brought the attention to all the Laravel users, because most of them are not really front-end developers. So... When they see someone they respect having an opinion on front-end stuff, they obviously will be willing to at least take a look at it, right? And then Jeffrey Way, who is a notable content producer, educator in the Laravel community, he makes LaraCasts, right? So he started making a whole series on teaching view to Laravel devs, and that really also helped. So with both of these combined, we see a lot of uh, growth and adoption.
0: Meanwhile, Evan starts talking to some people at Meteor. Meteor was a full stack JavaScript project where it was easy to get started. It got a
1: lot of hype and traction, and it, I have to say it was a really cool project. Right? It just came at a different time. There are some design decisions that eventually led it to locked it itself into a box in a way. You could only use MongoDB. It bundled its own Node.js distribution and had its own package system that doesn't
0: play well with NPM. All those kind of little things. The Meteor team, right? They're building a JavaScript framework. Evan's building a JavaScript framework. And so they wanted to learn from him.
1: They flew out me to San Francisco for for a tech Talk. They just flew me out there and asked me to share my experience working on Vue, share some technical stuff. And after that, they just gave me an offer saying, hey, do you want to work here? You can work remote in New Jersey. I was like, wow, nice. I don't have to commute anymore. <laughs> so I took the job and then I started to have to, split time between working on Meteor stuff and
0: Vue at the same time. Evan joined Meteor because he wanted to have that startup experience. Also, you know, Meteor was a popular JavaScript framework and so it was a great place for him to learn. And he had a lot of knowledge of how the ecosystem was moving that could be really valuable to the Meteor folks. Unfortunately, they wouldn't or couldn't always listen to Evan's feedback. And sometimes this was frustrating. I was I was trying to say, okay, you see the community is
1: clearly moving towards the NPM ecosystem. Maybe Meteor should restructure as just a bunch of NPM packages, be less monolithic, play better with the the where the main group of users are. Just be be a bit more open. In the early days the JavaScript community just wasn't ready to buy into something this monolithic. It just happened that the early adopters preferred a more small packages on NPM kind of way of development. But obviously that's also technically that's a hard thing to do because that means a lot of design decisions need to be re- re-evaluated. So they never did that. And then on the front end, Meteor had its own solution called Blaze, which was an interesting solution. It almost worked exactly the same way as the the signals you would see today. But back then for most people, it was too low level.
0: So Meteor needed its own front end. React was the obvious choice. The the rest of the team was in the Bay Area. React was out of Facebook. And by this time was really popular in their target market of, of big tech and startups. I mean, Vue was gaining popularity, but with a different crowd. And intellectually, this all totally made sense to Evan. But just that decision put him in a strange place. So they actually put me on trying to
1: get React working in Meteor. For me, that wasn't really fun, right? I was like, "How about I make Vue work in Meteor instead?" Yeah. Did you ask? We didn't have this conversation seriously, but I can deep down I know that wasn't gonna be a viable decision from a business perspective, because back then Vue was really small, like yeah. compared to the adoption, especially to the target audience that Meteor was was targeting, like all these startups in the Bay Area. None of them were using Vue, and most of them were using React. So deep down, I knew like this was, wasn't going to happen. So that was, that was what they put me working on. And obviously I wasn't super happy about it. And eventually I spent more time working on Vue and felt like, okay, working on Vue is just uh, more fulfilling than, than working for Meteor at that point.
0: So Evan started to think, you know, how could he spend more time on Vue? How could that be his full-time thing? How do others fund open source projects?
1: For me, it's more like a trial and error process. I had some savings. I started building a, a sort of like a passive income stream on Patreon. But in the beginning, there was maybe a, about around 1000 a month. And then I had a friend who was a CTO of a YC-backed startup. They are pretty big users open source. And they were like, hey, we have this open source fund that we use to support open source projects. And we rotate it every couple months so we can give it to View for a few months for $3,000 a month. And that really helped. So combine that with my Patreon, that's like combined like a bit over $4,000 a month, enough to make a living. Obviously a, a, a lot lower than what uh, I would make at a, a big company, but... For me, that's like the utility of being able to work on something I want to spend more time on is huge, right? I was willing to give it a shot. I was like, if it doesn't work out after six months, worst case scenario, I'm just going to look for another job, right? So there wasn't, wasn't too much to lose because at that point, Vue was getting decent traction. It has grown to a pretty, pretty respected project at that point already.
0: So Evan decided that he would jump in. He could start working on Vue full time in 2016. He wasn't scared. He wanted to give it a try, but also his wife was pregnant with their first child and he wasn't sure how his family would react to him quitting his job.
1: My mom would be really worried if I told her back, but, but, but my wife already knows now, but I, I, kept it. Uh, I didn't, I didn't tell her when I, when I left Meteor because I was working remote, right? So I was just like sitting in front of my computer in my room. So I worked out with you basically full time for a couple of months.
0: But when did you tell your wife? Like, how does that conversation go? <laughs> it
1: didn't, it didn't went well. <laughs> so she found out when we got a letter in the mailbox about the, the COBRA thing that is the, the health insurance. When you leave your previous employer and she's like, what is this? I like, I can explain, um, <laughs> yeah, but she wasn't. She wasn't really mad at me because I think when I explained to her, "Hey, like I'm just trying this out," and she was
0: like, "Okay, fine, try this, but if it doesn't work out, I'm gonna kick you back to a big company." So, spoiler alert: he never got kicked back to a big company by his wife. Quickly, the funding was enough to support him, and then it was even more than his previous salary. And once he was full time, you know, the project picked up a lot of momentum. Vue 2.0 was a complete rewrite that he did in 2016. And then in 2017, he did 2.1, 2.2, 2.3, 2.4. He was picking up speed, right? He was getting feedback. He was iterating. And then in 2018 and 2019, users kept asking for more features, more powerful features to handle more complexity. In in a lot of ways, these problems, these
1: advanced users are facing, they're like, oh, Vue has scalability issues. Like we have a huge Vue product. We have these huge components that nobody wants to touch anymore. We don't know how to extract and reuse things. TypeScript support
0: isn't great. So they started Vue 3, right? A breaking change. Vue had to stay relevant. People were looking for a scalable, if more complex framework. Expectations had changed. And in the end, we decided we got to
1: just have a, new set of API that specifically designed to address some of more uh, complex case needs. In the the beginning, we were pretty happy with the design. It's called Composition API. And we said, okay, we're going to shift to this
0: new API. The old API is going to be deprecated. This did not go well. You don't always hear from people if they like what you're doing. But then when you do something they don't like, all of a sudden you hear from them. And now it seemed like the base was unhappy.
1: They're like, hey, you're taking away the the very reason we love you, and it's not going to be Vue anymore. In a way, our early user base are mostly people who preferred lightweight solutions, simple interactions, simple apps. So when we propose solutions to address these more advanced cases, these simple case users get pissed off because they are like, they're like, don't touch my framework. I don't want to work that way. I don't care about the complex cases. Why are you adding these complex APIs? Why are you making things more complicated? But at the same time, these the complex case users are like, I won't use Vue if it stays only for simple use cases because it shows it doesn't scale. Like we are gonna just migrate to React, migrate to Angular.
0: So Evan and the other Vue contributors, they had a big challenge, right? They had to go back to the drawing board. The question is how do they keep the existing Vue 2 users happy? And at the same time stay relevant to those demanding more flexibility, more code reuse, more advanced features.
1: So in a way, like we kind of have to go through a very challenging transition period. How can we make the whole transition story easier? How can we convince people that hey, the new API actually has some benefits that maybe not for your specific use case, but it's useful for this large group of other developers who are also using Vue. You guys don't introduce Vue from a script tag and just dropped it into a Laravel app, it's totally fine, right? But over time, we've also added a lot of new things like build tool setups or advanced APIs that's geared towards these more full-blown interactive apps that requires a bit more structure, a bit more better ways to refactor or maintain with types over long-term. Because if you look at the kind of front apps we're building, maybe in the early days, 90% 90% are on jQuery, 10% are complex apps. I think nowadays the spectrum has shifted a lot. The expectation users have on the front end has also changed. Like people nowadays expect really polished front ends. They expect interactions to be snappy. Yesterday I was using an app that refreshed the page on every button click. And I felt like hell. So user expectations change. The demand for front end architectures change. So the user base preference changes. You kind of have to adapt and when that change happens, there will always be people who are not happy. In a way, you kind of have to accept that. So I guess the best you can do is to to make the most amount of people happy, but inevitably you're
0: gonna make someone unhappy. So finding a middle ground Vue 3 shipped with two APIs. The first one, the options API was similar to how Vue 2 worked. The second one, the composition API was designed for those with more complex needs. Some users still didn't like this, right? Alpine.js was gaining popularity. It felt a lot like Vue 1. Many PHP people started using Livewire so they could stay in PHP as much as possible. But really, Evan and his team had tried to find an approach to make everybody happy. That's tricky though, right? It's easy with a new project where everything's new and exciting. But when you have an existing project, when People have legacy code when people use your old systems, when they have concerns about migration or they've just been left this project by by some previous team and they don't even know why they chose this stack. Users can get cranky. Users can be entitled. Sadly, that can be what happens if you succeed. You just have more users to make unhappy. And another problem with success in front-end frameworks or maybe just in life is that sometimes your community you know, they're just looking around and sometimes the grass always looks greener somewhere else because it's around this time that Evan started to hear people talk about the size of the React community, how big and pervasive React was and how that was a significant draw just in of itself.
1: When people take out the community size argument, it's always kind of like, well, right, yeah, React has a bigger community. It has uh, a lot of interesting High-quality projects like X UI or React Three Fiber stuff like that. But I'm just one person. I can't write all of that myself, right? So the thing I can do is to encourage the community to say, "Hey, look, there are some great ideas that React has, and we can have some of that too. Why not?" Right? Basically, it's it's not like an ego context where say our community is better, your community is worse, right? It's about there are great things over there. there. There are great things we can learn from. Like how about we make ourselves better, right? By learning from others. And I think that's, that's how we deal with
0: it. It's a good solution, right? Navigating the future of an open source framework can seem thankless. Everybody wants their project to succeed, but, but then when it does, you're just absorbing negativity at internet scale. But what Evan found is that this all changes when you meet in person. He learned this, at the first VIEW conference that took place in Beijing, China.
1: We had 400 people there. So it was a quite a big one, and people were like literally asking me for autographs and stuff. That was a shock for me. But it's also, for me, offline conferences are often the moment where it kind of refills me, because I'll be completely honest, there will be periods where I feel like burnout. I just feel like a burden working on things at times, and. And sometimes you would go on Twitter or other pl- like Reddit, and you would see people talking negative things about open source stuff. They would say, oh, Vue is shit. React is, is the goat. A lot of people say that without thinking about the implications or how people working on those technologies would feel when they see those words. And in a ways, as a maintainer, your signal-to-noise ratio is very disproportionate because. Online interactions, people rarely go out of their way to praise something that they really like. It's rare, right? Maybe out of a hundred happy users, maybe one of them will make a tweet and say, view is so great, thank you for making this. It does happen from time to time, right? But it's not like it happens every day. But there will always be someone raising an issue, and some of those issues won't be friendly. And they'll be like, your dumb library is breaking all my stuff. You better fix it right now. Or there will be people like, look how this other library is doing it. They're so much better. I'm gonna switch to them if you don't fix it.
0: That sucks, right? That will be hard for anyone to take. And it's really hard for Evan. You know, he, he loves getting positive feedback, creating something and, and hearing people enjoy it. That's what's driving him. And here he is just absorbing all this hate. So the, the view conference in Beijing, really made a difference, really saved him from feeling burnt out and beat down by this all. And then the Vue conference in Poland happened. And again, he got to meet a lot of Vue users in real life. They'd be like coming to you at the after
1: party and say, Evan, sir, your work has helped me so much. I'm making a living because of you. And i got this job because of you, things like that. And this happens a lot at offline conferences. And these are the moments that really makes me realize, okay, all the negative stuff you see online, they're disproportionately high because people are more inclined to express negative opinions on things. But this in-person interactions make you realize, okay, like there are much more people who are satisfied with the work you've put out there. They're just not really being really loud on the internet, but they are there. And they are here in front of you and they're saying that to your face. And that's much, much more empowering than something that's set over the internet. Right? So every time you go to an offline conference, it feels like I'm like, okay,
0: it, it really justifies all the effort that went into it and it's, it's all worth it. As we get close to the end so far of Evan's journey with Vue, it's clear to me that the path of open source development is as much about managing your own expectations and motivations as it is about writing code. You know, Evan's story is about staying motivated long enough and working long enough on a project to build up a significant user base. And it's crazy that it all started back with that 486 that his dad bought him and the positive feedback that he got from the things he created on it. I think the common thing that that kind
1: of motivates me between the early interactions with the computer and the work I did later is that I'm validated by the things I create and share with people. So if I do work, but I don't see it being shared with people, can't see how it affects people in the world, then it becomes much less satisfying, much less fulfilling in a way. It took some risk, obviously, right? Didn't know how it was going to turn out. I didn't really have a clear picture of how I want to make this all work but kind of figure it out along the way. Obviously I'm not trying to convince people to take a a reasonable risk. I know I had a safety net. I know I could have go back to a big company if I really want to. So if you're at that stage, you're like, I I know I probably can land a job if I want to, but then I also have this really crazy idea that I'm really passionate about and I want to try it out. I think you should try it. Or you would live your rest of life thinking, oh, why did I never try that, right? Should they, should they tell their wife first or? That That depends. That really depends.
0: That was the show. And I got to say, thank you so much, Evan, for sharing your story. It's just, I love hearing all the, the little details that, that bring things to life about how somebody shepherds a project like this through time. You can find Evan on Twitter. You can find him on GitHub. You can especially find him, you know, in person where you can tell him you know how much his story means to you if you want to learn more about how evan got his sponsorships lined up how he got the money in for Vue and his other projects that help support him and take him on this path if you want to learn about that and how he thinks about funding for open source and the advice he gives to others who often come to him ask about hey how do i do this full-time how do i do open source um then you're going to want to check out the bonus episode. It's bonus 22. It's already out for podcast supporters. So support the podcast and you can hear that episode. And until next time, thank you. Thank you so much for listening.